and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. Half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things sciencey. I have a joke for you, Stu. You have a joke for me? Oh, yeah, yeah. What did they give the guy who invented the door knocker? The Nobel Prize? That's the one, yes. Oh, okay. God. Yeah, th- thanks for bringing that up, Chris. But that is what we're actually talking about this week. The Nobel Prizes were awarded in Sweden uh, a couple of weeks ago now, I think. Um, and they actually handed them over. So we were going to look at the sciencey uh, prizes that were awarded, including the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine, which I'll be covering. That was awarded to Yoshinori Osumi uh, for his research into the mechanisms of autophagy. I see your autophagy, and I raise you topological phase transitions, uh, which was what the achievement that was awarded the, the physics prize. And I won't list the names of people now. It's a very complicated one. I sort of figured out the chemistry one, sort of, kind of, I try to. Um, and it was awarded to three scientists, and I'll go into that in a bit. But um, it was for the design and synthesis of molecular machines. And that sounds cool. Yeah, so, it is so, cool. So it's a bit more complex than a... Um Baking soda and vinegar volcano. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what they did. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. I've never prize for that. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll hear more about these uh, Nobel prizes in detail later on in the show. So stay tuned. As I said in the intro to the show, uh, I'm going to be talking about the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine. And I guess this one's kind of a bit of both. But this year it went to Yoshinori Osumi for his research into the mechanisms of autophagy. So what the heck does that mean? Um, And why is it worthy of a Nobel Prize, what he was doing? So first of all, autophagy. What is autophagy? Uh, autophagy literally means self-eating. I see. Um, but we're not we're not talking about zombies or cannibals here. Or Ouroboros, that snake that eats its own tail. No, not Ouroboros. Ouroboros. Um, but on a, on a very, very much smaller scale, we're talking about stuff that goes on inside living cells. Mm. So, uh, obviously, we can tell that the cells of all living things, including us humans, are capable of building copies of themselves. Uh, based on the DNA code in the nucleus of every cell. But there's a lot more in a cell than just a nucleus. There are a bunch of other parts which are referred to as organelles, and they are the things that do most of the work of the cell. And, you know, every cell is actually doing work all the time to keep us alive and keep everything else alive. So that's organelles are things like mitochondria, which release energy, make our cells have energy to be able to do things. Uh, in plants, they have organelles called chloroplasts, which is where photosynthesis takes place, which captures energy from the sun and turns it into food for everyone else. And there's also a whole bunch of other specialised organelles. There's a whole range of them doing all sorts of different things. So in the 1950s, scientists discovered a new kind of organelle, uh, which contained enzymes capable of breaking up other parts of the cell that weren't being used anymore. So they called this organelle a lysosome so to lyse something mm. is to split it up, to cut it up into pieces. Uh, so what they discovered was the mechanism by which the cells could recycle all of that stuff 
that was inside them. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything that stopped working or was no longer needed could be broken up into its component parts and reused to build new stuff and also releases energy as well, uh, which is pretty handy. Otherwise, the cells would just fill up with crap really quickly. Um, so the recycling is really useful uh, ability that cells have. So in the 1960s, it was observed that there were special vesicles that formed inside the cells, uh, which could carry large fragments and even whole organelles to the lysosome. A vesicle? Vesicle? What's, what is that? What's it's, a vesicle? It's like uh, a little... It, it's like uh, the cell membrane sort of buds off and forms a little bubble around something. Okay. And that's what a vesicle is, and then the vesicle carries whatever it's got in it and drops it off at the lysosome for recycling. Um, so they, they actually called these vesicles, they gave them a special name, they were called autophagosomes. Right. So they're like the garbage collectors of the cell, are they? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's basically what they're doing is going around, collecting the rubbish, taking it to the recycling centre for recycling. Um, so they, people were you know, quite excited about this and cell biologists have been studying it. And then in the 1990s, uh, Yoshinori Osumi began working on autophagy in yeast cells. Um, so yeast cells are very simple and they're often used as models for other cells because they're easy to study and they're easy to reproduce and mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So uh, he wasn't actually sure when he started if yeast cells even had a process of autophagy. So he was just wasn't really sure. So the first thing he had to do was demonstrate whether that actually happened so then he could go on and do some other studies. Um, so he found some mutant yeast cells that lacked a certain... Uh, the certain enzymes that break other things down. And he found that his yeast cells lacking these enzymes filled up with autophagosomes. Right. The carrying cells really quickly because he stimulated them to produce these uh, autophagosomes. Right. And there was nothing to break them down. So they just like kept trying to clear the junk and there was just more junk. And And there was more junk and more junk and there was no enzymes to break down the junk. Um, so he proved that, yes, they did have uh, a, a process of autophagy. Uh, and he also, using once he'd figured this out, he was able to find um, mutant yeast cells which lacked various genes. And so he would study these different strains of mutant yeast cells until he'd figured out uh, the 15 genes that directly relate to the process of autophagy. My God. So he identified... Just by basically just by trial and error of checking out which genes were missing and what part of the process got stopped and all that sort of thing. So you probably say, you're probably saying, well, that's all very interesting and well done, um, Yoshinori Osumi. But that's what, what I was thinking. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah. But what what <laughs> use is it? You might think, why does he deserve oh, a Nobel Prize for for finding all this stuff out? That's really cool. Well, autophagy errors. So errors errors in the process of autophagy can cause major problems in pretty much every organism. Mm-hmm. So just like imagine if there was a garbage strike, how quickly garbage would pile up around the place. Mm-hmm. Well, this would happen in a cell if there was nothing to take the garbage away and no recycling centre to take it to. So um, disruption of the autophagy process has been linked to things like Parkinson's disease, um, type 2 diabetes, and a range of other diseases associated with ageing and also problems associated with some cancers. Mm. So when the really? cell function starts breaking down, these 
um, the the autophagy process gets disrupted and the cells find it even harder to function. Yeah. Even though they're already battling cancer. And- well, I mean, cancer is generally like an error in the cell somewhere. And so you can imagine if the mechanism that's supposed to clean up the cell isn't working, then that's a problem. Well, absolutely. And the other thing um, that autophagy does uh, in general is it grabs invading bacteria and viruses that pop up in cells and gets rid of them as well. So that's, it's actually part of the immune system mm. as well. So that if, the, if you get any disruption in that, your immunity might drop drastically as well. Um, and also because uh, autophagy rapidly provides both energy and building materials, it's also very important in the development of embryos and it's important in cell differentiation and it's important in stress responses. So it's basically this, you know, without, without this process working properly all of the cell metabolism starts to break down really quickly. So mm. the fact that we understand the genes for it now is um, is pretty amazing. I guess, yeah, because like cells work by making new proteins and all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, they're, they're constantly making mm. making new stuff from their DNA. And that thing has to go somewhere. Once it's done its job, mm-hmm. then you've got to get rid of it. Otherwise, you're just going to clog up with... All yeah, the it'll, used it'll, parts. it'll, yeah. Yeah, it'll yeah. fill up with tools for things yeah, that yeah. Aren't, aren't being used anymore. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I guess um, in, in in a sort of roundabout way, he's been awarded the Nobel Prize for medicine, but it's really a Nobel Prize for recycling. The Nobel Prize in Physics for 2016 was it was um, awarded to three people. Uh, now the way that that works often when there is three people is actually they split it two ways, and then one of those two ways gets split two ways. So what? yeah, this is, this is the way it works. So it's, I think the Nobel Prize is designed to even be give, either be given to one person or to two people or to three people, but two of them share that like half. Two, one and two halves. They do break their medal in half and. Yeah, they, I think they each get a medal. No, I don't. Know. I think they each get a medal, but 
they um you know they would get the prize money would be split right. accordingly then. I don't know why I got on this little tangent, but yeah, there were three people who got it. One half of it went to David J. Thulis, and the other half was shared between F. Duncan M. Haldane and J. Michael Kostelitz for, as the citation said, theoretical discoveries of topological phase transitions and topological phases of matter. Of course. I don't think I need to say any more than that. But no, I've got a, It sounds pretty obvious to me what you're talking about. Self-explanatory. Yeah. But we have a few minutes left, so I guess yeah, well, I may as well... Yeah, you might as well you say something, well. yeah. Now, so what this is, this is a field, uh, I will try and explain what all these words mean, but this is a field of condensed matter physics. So condensed matter physics deals with, you know, things like solids and liquids, that kind of stuff where matter is kind of in this sort of more condensed form, I suppose you could say. Uh, and you get some other, it covers stuff like the surfaces of these things, which sounds fairly simple, but really isn't. Uh, and the kind of more sexier sounding stuff like superconductors. Right, so well, everyone loves kind of, a superconductor. Yeah, all these properties of these solids and liquids and that and surfaces and that kind of stuff. All of it is pretty complicated. Um, and look, but I'm going to try and and, and dumb it down a bit. Um, I, Thank if, you. If any um, condensed matter physicists are out there listening, and I get it wrong, please email us at lostinside at gmail dot com or just tweet us or something and tell me that I've got it wrong. But apart from that, we're just going to charge on ahead. Okay, so what these what these scientists did? I uh, said so they studied phase transitions using topology. Now, what is a phase transition? Oh, I know yeah. this one. Uh, it's when matter changes from one state to another. So from like water, uh, from, from a liquid to a gas or from a solid to a liquid or from a gas to a plasma. Yeah, those kind of things. Yeah, so it's it, those kind of big changes in the, the state of it. Um, but when we go into there are other kind of phases that you can have apart from just the solid and liquid and, and gas and those sort of things. Um, can also be between things like um, a superconducting phase and a non-superconducting phase, those sort of things, where there's a big jump in its properties, a big change in its properties. Uh, now, one of the examples is um, where there is kind of more, one of these more subtle phase transitions, um, and it's been mentioned quite a bit in the writing about this prize, is something called the quantum Hall effect. So this is, just bear with me here, this involves a material that's placed in a magnetic field, um, the material itself is like actually a, it's a two-dimensional material, so it's a really thin sheet of stuff. Um, and you find that when it's in the magnetic field, it conducts electrons. Electrons move along its edges, but in in certain channels, and they only this conductance only happens at discrete values. So it's got a it's got a very stable value. It doesn't change whether when the temperature changes or when you move it around or anything like this. It only changes when you change the magnetic field by a large amount. And when it does, it kind of jumps up by one step or jumps down by one step if you drop it down. So it's got these integer values um, that's controlled by these large changes in the magnetic field. So but it's apart not, from that, it's not, a, it's not a gradual increase as you yeah. increase the magnetic field. Yeah. It's a sudden jump when a it sudden gets jump, to a yeah. certain increase. Yeah, and right. apart from that, it's, it's very stable. So that's, um, that jump is that's the phase transition when it's jumping from one level of conductance to another one. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, turns out that these phase transitions, and this is where this is the cool bit of this, is they found that it could be described using topology. And topology is the mathematical study of shapes, effectively. So, um, uh, so this is, this is where it gets abstract. So the theory they used is this mathematical thing of topology. So now the way it works, the big th- most important thing in topology when you're looking at a shape and a property of a shape is how many holes it has in it. So... Um, and so that's, that's kind of the tiny thing, not the actual like contours and kind of stuff, but how many holes, because we're in topology, things can be mathematically moved around. They can be remodeled and stretched and squeezed. So imagine everything is made out of some sort of like clay or something like that, or some sort of Mm -hmm. plastic material. Um, you know, so something like a plate, 
which is flat, and a ball, which is a sphere, obviously, are effectively the same shape mathematically because they can be deformed into, the, into each other smoothly. You could, you could squash a ball into a plate shape. Yeah, quite easily. Theoretically inflate a plate into a ball shape. Or, yeah, that kind of thing. Oh, but you could squish it around. You could do that. You could squish oh. it around. Now, something with a hole in it, though, you can't make a hole in it without tearing it. Uh, so something like a, anything with a hole, with one hole will be the same thing. So like a donut and a coffee cup is usually example people give because a coffee cup has the handle, makes it topologically the same as a donut, which has a hole in the middle. You can't turn the ball into the donut without ripping a hole in the middle. So that's not a smooth change. So they're quite distinct. Uh, so yeah, we count the holes in things. Like a two-hole thing would be like um, a pair of glasses with the lenses removed, uh, three holes, a uh, pretzel maybe, you know, it's got oh, kind yeah. of three holes in it. Now, how does this relate to our quantum hall effect? Well, so it's not the material itself that has holes in it in this case. It's a mathematical model extracted from that where you basically you map out the energy that the electrons can have against their momentum oh. in this kind of multidimensional energy surface. And that energy surface, this graph you draw, um, theoretically, has holes in it. And the number of holes you find in that energy surface corresponds to the number of these channels that the electrons can go down. So when you're basically changing the magnetic field, you get one of these big jumps, you're going through a phase transition, you're essentially tearing another hole in the, in the surface. And that, oh. explains, that explains why yeah, there is such a big jump, but also explains why these things are so stable apart from that. Because just like any other changes, like your thermal changes and those sort of things, yep. they're just kind of squeezing it around. And they're de- deforming it, but they're not changing its essential topological yep. property, which is the number of holes. So, yeah, it is a highly theoretical thing. It's very highly mathematical. Um, but it is, it's very interesting. And it's led to a whole kind of – it's changed yeah, the way people look at these – look of. at these material – the whole kind of, yeah. <laughs> the way people look at these phase transitions, they look at probably some of these materials. And it's also led to ideas for new materials. Um, they call these topological materials. I'm just going to say this on the applications. They're kind of, you know, this, we're kind of talking cutting-edge stuff. So even this, some of this work was done a few years ago. People are still developing new materials based on this. You know, there's a thing called um, uh, topological insulator, which conducts electricity only on its surface. So there's an insulator inside. Uh-huh. Um, there are, and those apparently are used in spintronics, which is kind of a weird sort of electronics that uses spins of electrons, it's not important. But apparently oh, people are making hard drives out of this stuff. Oh, cool. Um, and, you know, generally there are a few other materials like that. And this stability, this fact that these, the, um, these properties of it are stable until you go through one of these phase transitions means that it could be useful in something like quantum computing where you're looking at these very finely tuned electronic properties and they can be very hard to, say, scale up to high temperatures or to a large scale because they're very fragile to, to, you know, things moving around and shaking, this kind of stuff. But you've got something where its properties are stable due to its topology, then uh, it makes it a lot more better chance for that. So, look, it is a very abstract, theoretical-sounding award, but it leads to a whole lot of practical applications, um, which you probably don't need to worry about too much. But, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's these kind of small things that are working in the background that will have big effects down the, down the track and... Will change your life without you even knowing it.
This year, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to three people, similar to the uh, physics award. The three scientists were Jean-Pierre Sauvage of the University of Strasbourg in France, Sir J. Fraser Stoddart from Northwestern University in the States, and um, to Bernard L. Feringa from the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And they were awarded the Nobel Prize for the design and synthesis of molecular machines. Um, basically, what they did was... Uh, they developed these molecules with controllable movements. So if you added energy to these molecules, it can perform a, a specified task. The award was given to these three scientists because of the different, like, very vital role they played to the eventual development of these molecular machines. And so their work um, spans over... A, about two decades, but it's it's actually quite impressive. Were they were they actually working together? Were they working on the same project, or they just all contributed so they to all, the outcome of the the thing? Yeah, so they didn't actually all um, work on the same project. They um, they probably know each other now, at least. But <laughs> <laughs> but like what happened was that each of them played some sort of a role, or they did something impressive, and the others built um, built on the previous one's findings. Uh, so it started off in 1983, where Jean-Pierre Sauvage, um, he linked two ring-shaped molecules together to form a chain called a catenane. And the interesting thing is that the catenane was um, a molecule that's not, it wasn't bond, uh, bonded by the traditional covalent bonds, but instead it was bonded by a freer mechanical bond, which meant that each of the interlocking chain, uh, interlocking rings could actually move independently of one another. So they could move, they could move independently and relative to one another. And but these are really small. This is only, this is not like some big ring. This is kind of like a small of, you know, so like a dozen or so atoms or something like, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So these are really, really tiny rings. They're like little, like five carbon rings sort of thing. So, okay. so really super tiny rings. Um, and so with the uh, with the interlocking rings, he was able to f- basically he could make say one turn and the other stay stable. So they're not they're not moving with each other. They're not pulling each other. Um, and then in 1991, uh, Fraser Stoddart took the rings to uh, a further step. What he, he developed what's called a rotaxony, and a rotaxony is this molecular ring that's on a really thin molecular axle. And um, the ring actually moves along the axle. So he took what Sauvage did in 83 and, and pushed it a step further. And he was able to make these rings basically travel along a molecular axle. So not only do they move independently of, a, of one another, but he could control where they were going and, and push them in one direction along this axle. Okay. So it's not like necessarily a wheel that's rotating around, but it's going up and down the axle. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then... Using these um, rotaxines, the he was able to develop molecular lift, a molecular muscle, and a molecule-based computer chip. So basically, he was using these um, these little rotaxins to build little machines. But the the next guy actually took it a, a step further. Um, Bernard uh, Feringa, he actually brought it all together. So he used the work of of Sauvage and Stoddart Stoddart to make the first molecular machine, and he took 
what they did. And actually, um, when he uh, his or when his team added the energy, they were making these machines do a very specific task. So when the first thing that they did was um, made a rotor blade that spins continually in the same direction. So the the molecule um, was basically this flat chemical structure. And it looks like two rotor blades, and they were joined together by a double bond and a methyl group. So um, a CH4 group, methyl group. And they, um, they added each of these, these methyl groups to each of the blades. And the methyl groups added, acted like a ratchet. So when the molecule was exposed to a UV light um, burst, the blade jumped 180 degrees, and with it, it took the it took the uh, so it jumped 180 degrees around the around the double bond, and it took the ratchet with it. Can you guys all envision that? So it was if like if they kept flashing it, it would keep spinning around. Um, yeah, and so he he found out these properties, and he conti- uh, he kept blasting it with UV, basically giving it that energy, and it was creating this um, this spin over and over again. And they continued this, and they made the um, blades rotate around and around. And the, and the interesting thing was that they were able to control the direction. So they were able to assign which way they wanted it to move. And that's, ba- that's basically how it brought together everything to form these um, molecular machines, because we already knew that we could create these, or I didn't know this, but these people knew that they could create these um, independently moving molecules. And then they could also um, make it do things, and then... What um, but what Faringa's group did was assign the direction and the movement and the type of movement that you could do with it. So since then, his lab's actually been able to create a nano car. So a nano car. A nano car. So what is like, that? Like a like a car, a car shaped thing, made solely of molecules that can move like a car. So it has wheels that rotate, and then a body that stays. So each wheel is like a single molecule. Yeah, they all work together, and then they all rotate. So the four wheels rotate in the same direction at the same time to to transport the middle bit of the nano car that is stable forward. Now, yeah. the, now the trouble they're going to have is making the differential for the back axle, so it, when it turns, the wheels can turn at different speeds. <laughs> That'll be the real trick. How do you steer a nano car? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to have to worry very, about very self-driving tiny steering wheel. I guess if it runs into something, it's not going to cause a lot of damage. <laughs> Yeah, the insurance would be cheap. Um, they also um, they were even able to make a, a glass cylinder rotate. So they were able to use these molecules to rotate a glass cylinder that's about ten thousand times bigger than the little motor. So they're powerful motors. Yeah, they're really powerful, very strong. Um, yeah. So, anyways, together these three amazing findings were given credit for the development of a molecular machine. And this has actually been likened to innovations such as the electric motor back in the 1830s. And the officials actually reckon that the molecular machines will most likely be used in the development of new things such as materials, sensors, and energy storage systems. If we could combine our three Nobel Prizes to make, you know, machines made out of topological materials that then can destroy things in cells... I don't know what we can like. Evil genius, too much, too yeah. much. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds good, though. That'll be the next year's Nobel Prize. Yeah.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.